Hey everyone, welcome to the podcast for the Vineyard Church in Campbellsville, Kentucky. If you haven't already, we encourage you to check out our audio archive at vineyardcampbellsville.org. You can also subscribe on iTunes or wherever you like to get podcasts. And now, here's this week's message brought to you by Senior Pastor Adam Russell. What up, everybody? Good morning. Hey, my name is Adam. I'm the pastor here at the Vineyard. Welcome to church this morning. If you have your Bible, go ahead and open up to Daniel chapter 5. If you don't know where Daniel is, just like turn to the middle and then go to the left a little bit and you'll be there. Uh, That's how you get to Daniel. Uh, Today we are in our series and we've come up to chapter 5 and we're going to jump right into it because there's just a lot to this story for some reason. There's just a lot. So we're going to get right on it. Um, But the title of today's message uh, is uh, Living Sober in a Drunk World. And so that's kind of the frame I want you to have in your mind as we kind of like read this, and then I'm going to do a little storytelling this morning as well. So we're going to read the first 12 verses, and then I'll just tell you everything that happened afterwards. Is that okay? Uh, Seth, help me out. Thanks, dog. Uh, many years later, new king. I hope you notice this. New king. Up to this point, it's been Nebuchadnezzar, brand new king now. Many years later, King Belshazzar gave a feast for a thousand of his nobles, and he drank wine with them. And while Belshazzar was drinking the wine, he gave orders to bring in the gold and silver cups that his predecessor, King Nebuchadnezzar, had taken from the temple in Jerusalem. He wanted to drink from them with his nobles, his wives, and his concubines, so they brought these gold cups taken from the temple, the house of God in Jerusalem, and the king and his nobles, his wives, and his concubines drank from them. And while they drank from them and praised their idols made of gold, silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone... Suddenly, they saw fingers of a human hand writing on the plaster wall of the king's palace near the lampstand. And the king himself saw the hand as it wrote, and his face turned pale with fright. His knees knocked together in fear, and his legs gave way beneath him. Uh, If you have your Bible out, just underline that last little phrase. His legs gave gave way beneath him. That's actually very funny in the Hebrew. We'll come back to that. The king shouted for the enchanters, astrologers, and fortune tellers to be brought to him. And he said to the wise men of Babylon, Whoever can read this writing and tell me what it means will be dressed in purple robes of royal honor and will have a gold chain placed around his neck. He will become the third highest ruler in the kingdom. But when all the king's wise men had come in, none of them could read the writing or tell him what it meant. So the king grew even more alarmed and his face turned pale. His nobles, too, were shaken. But when the queen mother heard what was happening, she hurried to the banquet hall, and she said to Belshazzar, Long live the king. Do not be so pale and frightened. There is a man in your kingdom who has within him the spirit of the holy gods. During Nebuchadnezzar's reign, this man was found to have insight, understanding, and wisdom like that of the gods. Your predecessor, the king, Your predecessor, King Nebuchadnezzar, made him chief over all the magicians, enchanters, astrologers, and fortune tellers of Babylon. This man, Daniel, whom the king named Belshazzar, has exceptional ability and is filled with the divine knowledge and understanding. He can interpret dreams, explain riddles, and solve difficult problems. Call for Daniel, and he'll tell you what the writing means. We'll stop there, and I'll just tell you the rest of the story. So here's what's going on. There's a new king. The first four chapters in Daniel have all been about Nebuchadnezzar for the most part. And we've got a new king on the stage. His name is Belshazzar. 
also fun to say. And between Nebuchadnezzar and Belshazzar, there's at least 20 years. So Nebuchadnezzar has been dead for a minute. And there's a new king named Belshazzar. And by the point we get to in chapter 5, one of the things you need to know is that the empire of Babylon is already in decline. And one of the things that nobody in chapter 5 knows, but maybe they should know, is that the kingdom is in decline. That the empire is already becoming, becoming, uh, coming to its end. Uh, and so the king gives a party and he invites a thousand of his closest friends and they all get really good and really drunk. Uh, they don't get a little bit drunk, they get really, really wasted. That's what's happening in this passage. Now, here's the other part you probably need to know. little historical note. Because if you don't know the history, then it's hard to really grab onto what's happening in chapter 5. One of the things that's happening in the background around Daniel chapter 5 is this. Uh, Belshazzar, the king who's been named here, he's actually not the king. He's the proxy king. He's the son of the real king. So at this time... Babylon is about to fall, and the real king's name is Nabonidus. Why don't, somebody, why don't you guys say Nabonidus? Nabonidus. It just rolls right off the tongue. Uh, Nabonidus is the real king, and Belshazzar is his son. He's the proxy king. And the real king had kind of a religious dispute with some of the other Babylonians because Nabonidus didn't worship the same Babylonian gods that historically they had worshipped. He worshipped some different ones. And then because of this dispute, he's like, you know what? To heck with this. I'm not going to live in Babylon anymore. I'll run the country, but I'm going to run it from my oasis in what is currently modern-day Saudi Arabia. So he sets up his own little place in Saudi Arabia, and he tells his son, you stay in Babylon. You run things for me. I'll run the other stuff from my little oasis in Saudi Arabia. Call me if you need me. And what happens is in this moment, a couple kingdoms come together to conspire and to fight against Babylon. Uh, Persia begins to move in. And one of the things that we know from historians and rocks that we find in the ground is that a king named Cyrus had engaged had engaged the Babylonian army and had engaged King Nabonidus, who was leading that army, had engaged them about 50 miles north of Babylon in a city called Opus and had defeated the army of Babylon. So here's what you need to know. The real king takes an army and he gets engaged with another kingdom and that other kingdom led by King Cyrus overtakes them. And this is probably... What most historians and Bible scholars believe, this probably happened right around the moment that chapter 5 takes place. And so here's what I want you to see. On the night that King Belshazzar gives a party for a thousand people, less than 50 miles up the road, probably at that point, 10 miles up the road, the army who had already defeated the Babylonian army was camped out and was moving toward the city of Babylon. That's everything that's happening in the background. Uh, a couple things here. Um, you might be thinking, well, why would a king give a, give a party when there's, this, there's an army that is on the move and moving toward their city? Well, it was kind of like common practice in some ways. In the ancient Near East, sometimes kings would throw big parties on the eve of a battle as a way of rallying the troops. Be like, hey guys, let's go, 
do this thing together because tomorrow we're going to fight. Maybe a boost of confidence. But, but there's something else happening, I think, in the text as well. Maybe you noticed in the first 12 verses that when Belshazzar called for the gold goblets taken from the temple of God in Jerusalem, did you notice that little moment? Like that's actually a really big deal. That's why it was sort of like paused and put into the text. Uh, I think one of the things that Belshazzar knows is that there's another army coming. And I think he is trying to maybe rally the troops a little bit. And he takes the gold goblets from the temple of God in Jerusalem and he drinks wine out of them as a way of saying to his leaders, remember the day that our army kicked Jerusalem's butt and took over and our gods were shown to be better than their gods? Let's remember that day and let's call on our gods for tomorrow again right? He's calling to mind this moment of victory. Anyway, back to the story. So that's the scene. They're drinking and most likely a a short distance away, uh, there's an army who that night will come and will kill Belshazzar. And in the middle of their drinking, they see a human hand writing in the plaster on the wall. And there's some words that are written into the wall. We didn't read them in the text this morning, but it says that these words were written into the wall. The word many, and what's weird is the word many was written twice. Many, many, tekel, parson. Many, many, tekel, parson. And no one in the room knew what it meant, right? No one in the room knows except for Daniel. And so the queen mother comes in and goes, you know what? You guys don't know who, you guys don't know what these words are, but there is a person who does, and his name is Daniel. I remember him. The spirit of the gods is in him. So Daniel comes in and he lays everything straight. Uh, He's the one guy in the story who's not drunk. So that's why we're using this frame of living sober in a drunk world. There's a thousand people who have become intoxicated and there's one guy in the story who is still yet sober. Seth, let's put up verses 17 to 21. I want to read these because... This is Daniel's response to the king when the king says, hey, you know, if somebody can tell me what's going on, I'll give them a purple robe and a big chain. And Daniel says to the king, keep your gifts, give them to somebody else, but I'll tell you what the writing means. Your majesty, the most high God gave sovereignty, majesty, glory, and honor to your predecessor, Nebuchadnezzar. He made him so great that the people of all races and nations and languages trembled before him in fear. He killed who he wanted to kill, spare who he wanted to spare. He honored who he wanted to honor, and he disgraced those he wanted to disgrace. But when his heart and mind were puffed up with arrogance, he was brought down from his royal throne and stripped of glory. He was driven from human society. He was given the mind of a wild animal, and he lived among the donkeys. He ate grass like a cow. He was drenched with the dew of heaven until he learned that the Most High God rules over all the nations of the world, and he appoints anyone he desires to rule over him. So this is Daniel's opening response to the king before he interprets the writing on the wall, Daniel reminds him of Nebuchadnezzar. And here's why Daniel reminds him of of Nebuchadnezzar. He says to him, you need to remember Nebuchadnezzar because Nebuchadnezzar was greater than you, Belshazzar. There's a guy here who was greater than you. He had more glory. He had more honor. He had more power. He had more fame. And, And in his greatness, He became arrogant and the Lord made him like an animal until he acknowledged that there is a God in heaven. And so what essentially Daniel was saying to him is, if God can bring down one who is greater than you, he's about to bring you down. Really courageous words 
from Daniel. And so Daniel lays out the predicament. He tells them, he tells them what's happening and then he gives them the interpretation. And here's the interpretation of those three words. Mene means you've been measured, you've been counted, and you come up short. Uh, he says, uh, tekel, you have been weighed and you've been found wanting. And parson means everything's going to be divided, meaning your kingdom will be divided. Uh, when you read the account, it, maybe today you'll go back and read it. It's all, it's very, this part in particular is very Lord of the Rings. You know, you've been measured, you've been weighed, there will be a division. But the end, after Daniel tells him what it means, the end we see a, a change of the scene a little bit in verses 29 through 31. I just want to read the last few verses because we get a picture of what happens to Daniel. After Daniel tells him all of these things, which are actually kind of hard, then at Belshazzar's command, Daniel gets dressed in purple robes, gold chain was hung around his neck, and he was pronounced the third highest ruler in the kingdom. And then that very night, Belshazzar, the Babylonian king, was killed, and Darius the Mede took over the kingdom at the age of 62. So this is the end of chapter 5. That's the story. And you might be thinking, well, what does that have to do with us today? Well, here's the frame that I want to put around it. I've already told you. I want to put this frame of drunkenness and sobriety around it because the question I've been thinking about all week long is this. What does it look like to be sober in a drunk culture? Such a stunning contrast. A thousand people are drunk and there's one guy who was sober. There's an army at the gate and there's one guy who knows what's going on. And if this isn't a metaphor for the world we live in, I don't know what is. So here's what I want to do. I want to give you six markers of an intoxicated culture. Six markers of an intoxicated culture. Number one, if you're taking notes, number one, avoiding or avoidance. And this one goes deep in the text. Avoidance. And, and the, biggest, the biggest avoidance that's happening in the text is, is avoidance of God. Uh, there's, a, there's, a deep, there's a deep sense that, that King Belshazzar is avoiding, avoiding God in every way possible. And the irony is that over and over again in the book of Daniel, God is reaching out and he's speaking to Babylon. So in chapter 1, in chapter 2, 3, and 4, uh, even though the Babylonians are not necessarily connected to Yahweh, even though they don't respect Yahweh or his people, even though they've harmed his people, God continues to reach out to them. And by chapter five, instead of there being an awakening among the people of Babylon and the king of Babylon, there's still, there's still ignorance. There's, there's an avoidance of God. And, and what does it mean to live in an intoxicated culture? Uh, primarily this, just avoidance of God. There's an avoidance of God. And the avoidance doesn't just stop with God. But the avoidance seems to go all the way down to avoiding reality. So imagine this. There's an army that's already defeated your main army less than 10 miles away. And you give a party for a thousand people and everyone gets drunk. What might you call that kind of situation? You might call it an avoidance of reality. And by the way, an intoxicated culture will always avoid reality uh, and it will always avoid God. Those things go together because God is another word for reality. Any culture that avoids God will always be resistant to reality. And so there's just like, yeah, we don't want to pay attention to that. 
We don't want to pay attention to that. So number one, avoidance. Number two, fatalistic. Uh, maybe Belshazzar did know what was outside. Um, it would be hard to imagine that he didn't. And maybe the party that he threw was rooted in avoidance, but I can't get away from the idea that there was a grave sense of fatalism to the affair. Uh, eat, drink, and be merry. Why? Because tomorrow we're going to die. So maybe, maybe just one more hurrah. An inebriated culture is one that's not only rooted in avoidance, but it's committed to helplessness. It's committed to helplessness. In fact, one of the things we might say about our own culture is there is a sense in which people have become convinced they are helpless. What is helplessness? Helplessness is always a manifestation of deep-seated spiritual intoxication on the gods of the age rather than, rather than uh, uh, the help that comes from God. And, and, and I see this over and over again in my, in my pastoral ministry. One of the common markers in, in just being with people uh, yeah, through all seasons of their life is how, how common people feel helpless, feel like there's no choices they have to make. And what's interesting is after about 20 minutes of conversation, we always find that there's choices we can make. But an intoxicated culture is deeply rooted in a sense of helplessness. Uh, if we were to put it in therapy language, we would say underfunctioning. And I would like to say there is maybe no culture on the face of the earth that is more underfunctioning than American culture. Deeply underfunctioning. Uh, number three, foolish. What is an intoxicated culture? Um, if there's any word that comes to mind with this scene, giving a party for a thousand while there's a conquering army just a few miles down the road, uh, it's the word foolish. An intoxicated culture is one that lives for momentary pleasure. Uh, the only thing that matters is the fun we can have today in this moment. It's deeply immature. It trades the future for today rather than trading today for the future. I'll say that again. It trades... It trades the future for today rather than trading today for the future. Uh, one of the things that happens increasingly as people become more mature, if you're becoming a mature person, you will increasingly be willing to trade today for the future. That's just a, that's just a, a mature response rather than trading the future for today. You know, And intoxicated cultures always trade the future for today. They're like, you know what? Who, who cares what it's going to take for tomorrow. Let's just do whatever we got to do. To, like, let's have fun today. Even if it ruins us tomorrow, let's have fun today. I don't know what I'm on now. Number next. Uh, an intoxicated culture is one without honor. Uh, one, minute, one minute the king is in high spirits. Uh, he is probably dressed real nice. And then the next minute... Uh, the king is trembling with fear. The Bible says that his knees were knocking together, that his face had become pale. And if you read the Hebrew, and I'm not able to read the Hebrew like this anymore, but the guys who can read the Hebrew and the gals who can read the Hebrew like this really closely, they say there's like some strange euphemisms in the text. And one of the things that is happening to the king is he's not just afraid, but he's so afraid he just messes himself. So imagine one moment you're having a party, you've got your best clothes on and God begins to move in the room and you take this place of not being honored, 
but now you begin to dishonor yourself. You've just like urinated all over yourself and you're standing in front of a thousand people. What is an intoxicated culture? It, it finds new ways to dishonor. Intoxicated culture dishonors. A uh, number, I don't know, five, maybe, I don't know. Un, uh, unable to understand God's word. A hand comes into the room, literally writing on the wall, yet no one understands. Uh, God is moving and it's all hieroglyphics. Like an intoxicated culture can never understand the things or the ways of God. Never, never, never. A drunk culture is lost. And then finally, and maybe, maybe the one I want to focus in on the most this morning is an intoxicated culture is profane. Uh, beyond just getting drunk and the profanity that comes along with that, a drunk culture profanes that which is sacred. I hope you notice in the text that Belshazzar doesn't just have a party. He doesn't just give everybody wine. He doesn't just throw a feast, but he says, go get those gold cups from God's house and let's drink our wine from them. And not, not just drink our wine from them, but let's praise the God of gold and silver and iron and bronze and stone from the gold cups of God. It takes that which is sacred and it profanes it. Um, by the way, the word holy, the word holy means set apart. And, and when we talk about like holy in the sense of the Bible, almost always in the scripture, holy means set apart for God. So an intoxicated culture will take the things that are sacred or the things that are most, most important to God or things that are set apart for God and will profane them in some ways. And, and how many of you understand that we live in a culture where nothing is sacred? Uh, we live in a culture that looks for new ways to profane the most sacred things. And we could come up with examples for a really long time. I mean, we live in a world where nothing is sacred. We live in a world where nothing is sacred. There are few or no boundaries around sex. A modern culture says, have any kind of sex you want with anyone you want, anytime you want. And I want you to know, just as a church, this profanes the sacred. This profanes the sacred. Uh, there's a few things that, that break people like nothing else, and it always ends up in my office. And one of the things that breaks people like nothing else is when sex is made profane. When, when all the boundaries are gone, people come in my office and it's always filled with tears, y'all. We live in a world where there's no boundaries. Uh, we live in a world where marriage is completely optional and maybe disposable. You know, ah, don't get married. It's just complicated. Who cares about it? Like you could get the tax right off some other way. Like don't. Like, or maybe you, have a, maybe you have a spouse and you know, people are so willing to just like, Throw that away. Throw that away. Marriage can sometimes be optional. Uh, we, live in a, we live in a culture that refuses to accept most forms of responsibility. By the way, uh, when you think of something that's sacred, when you think of anything that's sacred, the thing that sits right next to whatever is sacred is almost always increased responsibility. Think, think about the things that are most important to you or the things that are sacred in the world and there's almost always some kind of personal responsibility that sits right next to it. And we live in a culture, not just of avoidance, but that wants to, to profane the sacred. We live in a culture that wants to not take responsibility for anything. Like my problems are always someone else's fault, right? I will not take responsibility. And I haven't been able to, to shake this one for a while too. You know, um, 
Uh, we live in a culture where our politicians will, will use human beings on the border to score political points with their party. Like this happens. This has happened recently. And, and to, to take human beings and use them as pawns to score political points for your party is to profane the sacred like almost nothing else because nothing is more sacred to God than people. So we live in a world where everything is profaned. But then we come to Daniel, and Daniel's the opposite in every way. Uh, Daniel never avoids reality. Daniel never avoids reality. He has an unbelievable ability to be both polite and bold and courageous. He's not avoiding God or life. Like the king's, the king's mother says, go get Daniel, he'll interpret for you. And Daniel comes in and doesn't just read the writing on the wall, but he like gives him history and tells him exactly what's coming. And he does it in a way that's not rude. He's just, it's just so rooted in reality. Daniel's not an avoider. Daniel doesn't come to the king and go, well, you know, I don't know. You probably, let's don't talk about those words. Like, let's don't do that. No, Daniel's not an avoider. Uh, Daniel's also not fatalistic. Uh, we saw this in the previous chapter, in chapter four, where Nebuchadnezzar has this dream, the dream about the tree that goes from the earth to the heavens and all the wild animals and fruit are in it. And he sees the tree cut down and he's like, man, I don't know what this means. And Daniel's like, well, hey, sorry to tell you this, king, but you are the tree. You're going to be cut down. But, but remember from last week, we paused just for a moment. Daniel said, but listen, Nebuchadnezzar, if you would stop mistreating the poor, maybe there'd be mercy for you and you could prosper yet still. And what this shows is Daniel's not fatalistic. Like there's always this opportunity for mercy. That's what happens with people who are sober. Uh, Daniel is, is rather than dishonored, uh, Daniel ends up honored. That's the reason we let, read those last verses. Uh, Daniel ends up being the person dressed in a purple robe and with the chain. The honor moves from the intoxicated person to the sober person. Uh, Daniel is familiar with God's word. And so when he sees the words on the wall, uh, he's not scared and he's not stupefied. Uh, Daniel's never profane. Uh, he doesn't use that which is holy as a tool in the service for the things that he's up to. So there we have it. An intoxicated culture, living sober. Uh, there's a couple of ways we could land this this morning. Uh, on the one hand, we could land this, we could land this moralistically. I could, I could really swing the bat really hard this morning. I could give you a good moralistic punch. What does that mean? I could tell everybody in the room to try harder. You know, do better. Don't, don't be an intoxicated culture person. Be a Daniel. And, uh, and I'll tell you this. Uh, there's, a, there's some wisdom in that, you know. You can read Daniel chapter 5 and you can just be like, yeah, let's be Daniels. Let's don't be Babylonians. That's a decent reading. But, but I actually don't want to land there this morning or I don't want to land there exclusively uh, instead, the thing I can't get away from in this text, but then also in every chapter, the thing that keeps popping through for me is the way in which Daniel prefigures Jesus Christ in every single text in Daniel. He's kind of like a metaphor or a shadow of Jesus showing up early. He's, 
He's, he's like an icon of Jesus that shows up in the Old Testament. Um, and it, it happens almost in every single chapter, and it happens even this morning in the chapter we just read. And it will happen again in a really profound way uh, next week, because in chapter 6, it's Daniel in the lion's den. Y'all remember that story? Daniel, yeah, yes. Thank you, Russ. Uh, Daniel's in the lion's den. And y'all remember how Daniel gets put in the lion's den, and what do they do? They put a stone over it, and Daniel spends the night, and rather than being dead the next morning, they pull it back, and who's alive? Yeah, I mean, it's just a retelling of the Jesus story early, and the same thing is happening here in Daniel chapter 5. This thing, the very same thing is happening. Daniel is a stand-in for Christ himself. Uh, in a culture that has no answers, Daniel has answers. Uh, Daniel has knowledge and Daniel has the words. He can read the words on the wall and in that way he is a light shadow of the word of God himself. Uh, in a culture of dishonor, Daniel ends up honored and he ends up robed like a king. He wears this purple robe and he has this chain on and it's like, a, it's like an echo. It's like a, a pre-echo of uh, of the, of the way in which Jesus is a king and the way in which Jesus has authority and the way in which Jesus will be honored. Uh, he has authority and Daniel also has courage. And so it leads me, I guess it leads me to this spot this morning. In the very places where any of us in the room have become intoxicated in the ways of the world, in the ways where you and I have maybe drank deeply from the way the culture we live in operates. Uh, or in the very places where you've tried to be a Daniel and you, you just couldn't. In the very places where you were weak. Uh, in the places where you were afraid. Or in the very places where you have either been dishonored or in the places where you've dishonored yourself. In the places where you didn't have any strength or in the very places where God was at work in your life and you were clueless, in the very places where you were stupefied, in the very moments that you or I have been weak, the good news is there is someone, there is someone not just in this story, but in the story of your life who has answers, who has courage, who has honor, who has bravery, who has sobriety, who has strength, who has wisdom. And he is willing not only to accept you in your weakness, but to give you his own honor and his own wisdom and his own glory and his own ability in the very places where you and I have been weak. This is the good news for you and I this morning. In those very places where we have nothing, he speaks for us, he comes to us, he reaches out and he lifts us up. So on the one hand, be a Daniel. And the good news this morning is, if you can't, there is a Daniel who will accept you in your undanielness. In the very places where you cannot, someone has and will. And so we can just sort of like let go of that anxiety. Here's what I'd like to do this morning. If you're on the worship band, come on up. We're going to sing another song. Uh, we're also going to pray at the end of this service. Maybe you need some prayer this morning. Maybe there's parts of your life that have gone goofy for any number of reasons. Uh, and you need some prayer 
After we get done singing, you can come up to my left, your right, and there will be someone here who wants to pray with you. Um, but as they come, why don't you stand, and we're going to pray together as a room. And then we're going to sing. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, thank you for your word. Thank you for the Bible. Thank you for the way that it speaks to our lives. Thank you for the way that it shows us what's real. Thanks again for stopping by the podcast of the Vineyard Church in Campbellsville, Kentucky. If you'd like to keep up with what's happening at the Vineyard, you can follow us on social media. Until next time.